Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always. I still, after all these times saying that intro line, have to like really think about what the fuck I'm saying, because it's never easy doing that. You'd be surprised how many times I messed that up. But I am joined with my quarantine partner, Chris Ying. And um, how do we explain this podcast? <laughs> uh, well, we did a podcast, uh, what, like a week ago, two weeks ago with, with Mina Kimes. Mina doesn't um, even know anything about this, by the way. <laughs> Mina, you know, I know Mina's on holiday or vacation. I want to leave her alone. And I have no doubt that Mina would agree with everything that we are talking about on this podcast. But the day of the release of Best of the Best, which was a couple weeks ago, we got a scathing email from producer, Chinese-American extraordinaire, Teddy Z who I've met on several occasions, who's sort of this like very important figure. Like every time I met him, they're like, that guy's important. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one time, the one time I ever had lunch with Teddy Z, he showed up with Joan Chen and I was like, what the hell's going on here? So he's legit for sure. I mean, I was at a party once. I don't know. This was years, like 10 years ago or so. And it was very clear to me. He's the guy that everyone, it was like a bunch of Asian Americans in LA. He was the guy that everyone wanted to talk to. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, oh, this is like the Reggie Jackson of the Yankees, the straw that stirs the drink. I get it. <laughs> so when Teddy Z asked me to do anything, I listen and I'm always like super attentive because I don't want to waste his time. So he sent an email, which we won't explain, like go word for word, but basically he said, I listen to your podcast all the time. I love it that Chris Ying's on the podcast a lot more now. Listen to my morning walk, and man, uh, I wanted to murder you guys because (laughs) it was the opposite of everything you guys have been working on towards solidarity, to raising voices that need to be heard, and uh, you guys are bullies. You guys are making fun of the person you should be lifting up. And I think this podcast gets very personal for both Teddy, for myself, and a little bit for Ying, because I think we tie in a lot of different disparate events into why, at least myself and you, we can't speak on behalf of Mina, but maybe she would agree as well, why we chose with all of our best intent to shine light on this movie, which is our goal, yet it turned out that we wound up not doing that. Yeah. And it was a surprising thing. I think getting his email and talking to him in this conversation, I think we both realized things about ourselves and and, and some fears that maybe we thought we had shed. So I'm glad he did it. <laughs> listen, and, and there's a lot of successful Asian Americans. And listen, I know we talk a lot about Asian Americans and we have a very diverse audience and I'm thankful and I'm privileged to be able to say these things. So... I don't want someone that's not Asian American to be like, oh, another of this. I just hope that you can empathize and listen because we're using this as an opportunity to talk about really important issues to us that I think you can extrapolate to a variety of topics in in, in culture. And, and, and I would say, like, you know, to you saying, like, you know, I hope that if you're not Asian American, you're not gonna tune this out. Like the other audience for this is anybody who's been tired of Dave and me rambling on from our high horse about any subjects this is the episode where we get put in our place a little bit because teddy's basically like hey you dum-dums if it wasn't for philip Ree and filmmakers like that you guys wouldn't be here 
yeah. wouldn't have a podcast. You wouldn't be talking. So, but in some ways, this is like you're looking at the process, particularly for myself, of always trying to get better, always looking at what we've done. And sometimes, you know, what is embarrassing is if I don't get an email from Teddy scolding me, I don't know if we have this conversation. Yeah, and, I think we just think that, we did a great job and we yeah, were hilarious and blah, yeah, blah, blah. And we got a lot of, you know, the downloads were great. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> more Bad Movie Club. <laughs> but I think it's an uh, important opportunity for, for growth. And I w- always want to be the hardest critic and the toughest person on what we do. So it was a good opportunity to have someone that really supports us to be a real father figure to us. Yeah. That's what right. it was. So here is a conversation with Teddy Z punishing us for <laughs> our best of the best podcast that people <laughs> liked a lot. <laughs> yeah. But you should listen to it differently after you listen to this podcast with the great Teddy Z. Maybe the audience may not know who Teddy Z is. Uh, Chris, you've never met Teddy. Have you met him before? We had lunch one time. I had that honor. But um, yeah, I would I would love Teddy if you don't mind to to give a little bit of your your background in, in the in the film business for for the audience. Yeah, because if you don't know Teddy and what he like who he is, you've definitely watched the movies he's been behind and the things he's produced. So, uh, Teddy, I, I think. I need to hear all the things that you've done. Well, um, I started out in the film industry back in the 80s. My first job was the dream job. Uh, I was uh, hired as a creative executive at Paramount Pictures as my first job in the industry. I graduated from Harvard Business School with the intent of landing a creative job in Hollywood. And this was during the go-go years. Um, my first uh, experience uh, in Hollywood, I, I got hired. They gave me a secretary. They gave me a parking spot with my name on it. And they gave me an expense account. And it was mind-blowing <laughs> that I could meet Eddie Murphy and Tom Cruise in the first month on the job. And this was at a time uh, when the film industry was all-powerful. Um, we had yet to invent uh, home entertainment. We had yet to invent uh, multiplexes were just coming around. There was no foreign films, uh, foreign uh, revenue coming from films. And uh, so I got in at the, at the right time. And uh, from Paramount, uh, I, I became a senior vice president and I uh, I pr- probably the most famous film that I was involved with was Indecent Proposal, um, the film where uh, Robert Redford offered Woody Harrelson a million dollars to sleep with his wife for one night, who was played by Demi Moore. Um, and then I went to Columbia Pictures, where I, I uh, you know, worked on uh, films like Charlie's Angels and Anaconda and My Girl and cable guy, a bunch of them, and and then uh, worked with Will Smith, uh, ran his film division, and I, I produced Hitch and uh, executive produced uh, Pursuit of Happiness and um, and a little film called Saving Face that was uh, um, a Asian-American film. 
And uh, what's relevant more than anything for this conversation is that um, I grew up in upstate New York, um, basically as the only one handful of Asian kids in a town of mostly white. And um, it was a real experience for me. So when I came to Hollywood as one of the first Asians in a prominent role, um, I was able to navigate and fit in because I, you know, grew up around a lot of white people, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but it wasn't until I saw a movie called um, The Killer that starred Chow Yun-Fat, the Hong Kong star, that I actually realized that I was Chinese hmm. and that I embraced being Chinese. And I set out to bring Chow Yun-Fat to Hollywood to launch him in his first film because I thought, contrary to you, you think that um, the sexiest man in the world. Bruce Lee. But Chow Yun-Fat is Bruce a Lee. Handsome, handsome man. Oh <laughs> Definitely handsome man. So I just, you know, one could kick the other's butt, but in terms of from a, from a sex appeal standpoint, I think Chow Yun-Fat is what every Asian man would love to look like. So anyways, <laughs> that's, that's my, that's, that's probably um, the thing that I uh, was most proud of in my Asian-ness. And uh, that's why I'm here today. So Teddy, you don't have to give me your age, but like, was it later is like, were you in like your forties or fifties when you were like, I, I discovered my, rediscovered my Chinese roots? Well, I'm 63. Um, and I, uh, that was in the nineties. So it was over 25 years ago. Um, so I was in my, uh, I think late thirties or early forties. I was, look, there's so much, I've been listening to you religiously and your father's day message actually, oh, I got so choked up because I felt like, um, I was in your shoes and you were telling my story. And I had that relationship with my dad and it goes back to all of this stuff about growing up, having to live under a different generation in a new world and how that shaped my identity and what it did to me emotionally. And uh, it was both a blessing and a curse. So I want to first say that I, 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 want to send my condolences, but no, I appreciate it, Teddy. Can you elaborate on that? Because that's something I feel like as Asian Americans that have this platform, we should talk a lot about because it seems that if you're not of that generation, first, second generation, and if you are a younger millennial, you may not even know what that life was like. And, you know, I have a lot of things that I'm dealing with in my life right now. And one of which is obviously the reckoning of my father passing. And there's a lot of reckoning happening in the world right now in general. And I've been thinking a lot about how I, you know, my, my issues of, of being a angry person, particularly at work and how, you know, the thing that really knocked me on my ass was that in some of my employees in the past, I treated exactly like my dad treated me. Course. And, and and then like it took me him passing to be like oh my god like how did I how did, I spent my life trying not to be him 
And in the ways I never wanted to be him, I actually wound up being like him. That's a heavy thing. You know, um, it's a tough thing when you're, I had in my goal not to be my father, not to have the relationship with my kids that I had with my father. And when you are trying to avoid something rather than to become something, strange things happen. Mm. And I ended up having the kind of relationship with my children that I had with my father, even though I did everything differently. How? How did that happen? Because like, I know you love, like we're having this conversation because you are an incredibly empathetic person that exudes love and care. And we're going to talk about what we wanted to talk about in a second. But I think this is all very important conversation to have because, you know, as a new dad, like, you know, I was unprepared to do a lot of things. And it's just like, it's amazing how much your story is like Chris's story. And all these people that I know that are like, I don't want to be like my dad yet. I'm somehow, it's not just genetic. I am acting like him in ways that I'm even subconscious, like I don't mean conscious about. Like, how did that happen with your own kids? You know, it's a, it's a chain that if you're not conscious of, it will just repeat itself. It's, it is imprinted in us. It's, we, you, you, our parents were our, were terrible teachers, but awesome role models. Whatever they did, we ended up doing. So my father worked like a dog. So me, I love working. My father could not express emotion if it killed him. Only when he became a grandfather was he able to find a gentle side to himself. You know, we all laugh about what it's like growing up with Asian immigrant Asian parents. But if you were to really cut through all the, the humor about it, it's abusive. Yes. There's not a lot of what we call love. You know, what love is expressed in, it's expressed through food and money mm-hmm. and criticism. Mm-hmm. And when you're a kid, you don't understand that, that form of love. All you understand is obedience. Yes. And you swallow all that pain over and over. At some point, it's got to come out. So in your, in your respect, maybe it came out in anger, but for everybody else, it comes out in different fashions. You know, I think that what you said right there, Teddy, about swallowing, suppressing that pain, though, that, that's, the, that's the tie that binds us to our fathers, I think. You know, I, I had the conversation with my dad, you know, after, after talking to Dave a lot about, you know, this Black Lives Matter movement and trying to, trying to engender this sort of empathy in, in our, our parents and our families, you know, I had this, my dad called me, and, and I didn't even know he listened to this podcast, frankly, but he, he called me and said, that was, that was an amazing podcast you guys did. My whole life, I've been afraid of cops. I've been so angry and I've just felt like I've been so powerless my whole entire life. And like my father has never told me that he's been afraid of anything his entire life. He's never said, never, never expressed emotion. Like you said, never said, I love you, that kind of thing. But he, he said, I'm so angry right now, Chris. And, and I realized like our parents in trying to integrate and assimilate and keep their heads down and, and work, were, were suppressing so much pain of their own. And it probably came out in the way that they 
treated us. And and I think when it when it comes to you and me and Dave, we've suppressed so much of that. And unfortunately, like, like you said, and, and like Dave said, and, and for me as well, like it comes out, it comes out in ways that the exact opposite of what you want to be. So let, let's go back and, uh, you know, we're all enlightened. We can all reflect, but the truth of the matter is I hated my father. Mm-hmm. I hated what he did to me. I hated how he treated me. Right. And, uh, it's really hard to say that, but it's the truth. And it took a long time to understand that he didn't have the ability to process emotion because that's probably how he was treated. Mm-hmm. But as a result of hating him, I was embarrassed of everything that he stood for. Mm-hmm. So I was embarrassed that he was Chinese. So I was embarrassed that I was Chinese. I was embarrassed that he was poor. I was too. He worked as a chef in a restaurant, in a hotel. The guy made $16,000 a year at his highest earning level. I was a senior in college and I made $17,500. I made more money as a senior than my dad did. Yet he put four of us through college into master's degree programs. It's mind boggling. Could I appreciate it back then? No. But I remember he, I wanted a job at his hotel and I ended up getting it, but he went to the personnel manager and he groveled. He groveled. I mean, he couldn't even stand up. He looked down and he averted eye contact and I was so ashamed of him and he did the best he could do. So I spent my life running from everything he was. Mm. And I, it's terrible, but I ran from being Asian. I convinced myself that all my friends weren't Asian, that, that I was the exception, that, You know, when my Asian, when my white friend said, Oh, you know, I don't even think of you as, as, you know, you're, you're so not Chinese. You know, that was like a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And, and I live that. And I tell a lot of kids today, who are you fooling? You walk into a room, you can't hide who you are. They see it, you know, and it's only after I saw Chow Yun Fat. Mm-hmm. as the killer was that's who I should embrace mm-hmm. who I am. And that was my road to becoming Asian. That was my rebirth was my first rebirth. So, you know, when I, the reason I'm here is I wrote you guys an email and I was so angry with you guys. I was so angry because I look up to you guys. You guys are so articulate. And then after I, I calmed down, I realized you guys are where I was 20 years ago. You know, I, 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 what I guess I was so angry about was that I saw myself, what I didn't like about me in you 
when I was your age. Now I'm, I'm dumping all of my stuff onto you and I don't mean, I don't mean to do that. No, it's important that you do. Right. And the reason why I respond, like, you know, I have such reverence and respect for you, Teddy, that when you email me, I listen, you know, and it's why I wanted to have this conversation because there's very few Asian Americans that have done what you've done. And we all need more people like you in all forms of business. And, you know, I appreciate the fact that you supported us from afar and, you know, I take everything you say very seriously because there's not many people that we have like you out there. So, you know, the fact that you wanted to scold us, right. And I know from your email, how angry you were in regards to best of the best, the podcast who did with Mina Kimes. And I think originally Chris and I were like, we didn't know how to take it. It was like, uh, you know, like, Multiple things can be true. And then the more I think about it, I was like, well, it took a lot for him to email this. And I read it several times and I could feel the the searing pain. And that's what I wanted to talk about because the only thing we can do, in my opinion, is not to say that it didn't happen. It's out there for the world to understand. It's a viewpoint that I know that if I didn't talk to you, I probably wouldn't have thought twice about maybe 10, 15 years down the road. I probably would be like, man, I'm such a dumbass. What did I, what did I take that perspective? But to be honest, Teddy, I want to talk to you, and I'm sure Chris does as well, to further understand all your viewpoints about why you think that podcast was setting us backwards. Well, I want to start first by saying I want you guys to understand that how much power and influence you have, whether you like it or not, people look up to you. And with that popularity comes responsibility. You know, back when I was the um, one of the highest ranking Asians in Hollywood, all these Asians came to me and threw all this responsibility to me. And I was just trying to do my job and live my life. Mm. And, you know, I never fit in anywhere in my entire life until two things happened. I made an Asian film and the Asian community adopted me and gave me a home. So I finally felt a home. And then the second time was when I became a Christian and I understood what real love was about. Okay. So now you're at a place where you're a multimedia sensation, food and entertainment and media. And, and whether you like it or not, Asian Americans look up to you because how many of us are out there that have reached, that have your reach. And you've been incredible on your podcast. You and Chris have been so vulnerable, so open, um, taking the mantle of Black Lives Matter, taking the mantle for small business owners. You welcome those opportunities to lift up all of those um, underdogs, right? And here was the ultimate underdog, best of the best, a filmmaker in through the lens of the late 80s or late 90s or in the 90s, who tell me what Asian American got a film made. Crazy. Nobody. Right. So. I loved, I was so excited when you and Chris talked so fondly about best of the best and, and bad movie club and what it meant to you as a kid. And I was so excited. 
And I'm here, I'm walking on my peaceful two, two hour morning walk. And you're just dumping all over the film. And I'm, again, it's not a great film necessarily from a filmmaking standpoint, but what it took to get the movie made, you didn't cover that. What it meant to people who saw it, you didn't cover it. Um, the fact that there were four of them made means it made a lot of money, which means it resonated with people. And I know they weren't just Asian because Philip is a god in the black community and Latino communities. You know, so um, for me, I, I wrote in the email that it felt like, you know, you guys were the bullies on the schoolyard picking on the Asian kid. And all it took, and, and I, I, I can't argue with some of the, the points you made. I just wish you would have said it and spent five minutes on, you know, there's a reason why we featured this because when we were young and we watched this, this was the only thing we could see that reflected anybody that looked like me, right? So it's easy to feed Michael Jordan and, and Bruce Lee and all the greatest, but there are a ton of people out there who are trying to knock down those walls. And it's the effort and the, and the, um, the mission that really is so profound. And that's why I think actually Philip is 10 times more accomplished than I ever could be because he put his money where his mouth is. He took the risk. He got it made. And people look up to him. So, um, and I know this is an easy conversation because I, I know that's in your heart. That's your mission anyways. Mm -hmm. And I just write it off as a momentary lapse. And it was fun having Mina on and it was easy to go with the flow. But I just wanted to put that postscript on it and say, it's people like that who provided the foundation for crazy rich Asians and, and what's happening on Netflix today and where the world is going. We may not know all the names, but those people like Philip, he paved the way. And, 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 and actually his email made me cry because he's so generous in his heart about community. And he has the utmost respect for you guys, like I do. And so I just, I'm just grateful to be able to lift up and shine a light on Philip. And I hope that, and I know you won't argue with me, it's a mantle that whether you like it or not, you have to assume too many people look up to both of you. And I believe that you two are the perfect combination. You guys are, your friendship, your love for each other is so strong. You balance each other out so well. You're both so articulate. You know, we have a lot of friends in common and I'll, they'll laugh at me when I say, I just love, I can just hear Dave's voice and it's just so soothing to me. <laughs> Who? And they're like, Dave, that maniac, who are you talking about? And I said, he can talk eloquently about anything. And that's how your audience, I believe, looks at you guys. 
And you use a lot of your brand equity in the right places. And I just don't want you to forget that the world looks at you as Asians. Hmm. Yeah, you're a chef, you're an entrepreneur, you're a small business owner, you're a media personality, but you're Asian. And your brothers and sisters out there, they love you. And they don't want you to forget your roots. Well, you know, I've been saying this a lot the past few months. Thank you for holding me accountable. You know, and I genuinely mean that because, you know, when you in that email said I was a bully, that that was that was that was hard because again, this ties into how we started this about our fathers. It's like, fuck, you know, that's my default setting. It has become my default setting. You know, in in not especially when it's easy for me to be my relaxed, I don't have to worry about anything. I'm in a position of power where I can now espouse whatever I want without any repercussion. I was like, I've been working on that a lot, you know, and I that has caused me a lot of problems. And uh, I don't, you know, I still fail at that. Obviously, I did it here, and it's hard to always be cognizant of your actions, particularly when you're in a moment of, you know, I'm just talking shit. And in 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 some ways, I know Chris. I don't know if you agree with me, Chris. The shit talking was rationalized because we were trying to bestow honor on the movie. Yeah, I think we were trying to treat it like we would treat any other movie. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't, like Dave said, your, your email, at first we didn't know how to react to it. And I, I think it's because, you know, I think Dave and I talk about the Asian American experience so much personally and on this show. We consider ourselves huge advocates for Asian Americans and, and, and for Asian culture and, it always it, it took us by surprise. You know, you get blindsided by your own shortcomings, like Dave is sort of saying, when when suddenly you have this perception of yourself and what you were doing and what we were doing with this podcast, and then somebody comes with a, a fresh outside perspective and says and says, Hey, you're not looking at it this way. And and that was that was really, really hard to hear, but I think you were absolutely right. Otherwise, you know, Dave wouldn't have reached out to have you on the show. So you know, Teddy, I, I wonder, I know you're not, you were not a producer of Best of the Best. Um, I know you're just, you're sort of like just an acquaintance of, of Philip, but having produced films during this period when this movie came out, can you, can you tell us a little bit, can you paint a picture for what it must have taken for Philip to get this movie made? Like, what was he, what was he up against? How did Best of the Best get made? How about every door slamming in your face? Let, let me say this. In general, Hollywood is an equal opportunity discriminator. <laughs> the only color that matters is green. Certainly, if you're, if you're part of the club, you have an advantage. So I don't want to make it out to be like they were Hollywood uh, singled out Asians. Although, man, it was hard for everybody, but it was particularly hard for Asians because there was no... Um, the foreign markets were not what they are today, you know? So nobody believed that the Asians showed up and supported each other. 
Now, um, the martial arts genre was something that was a known moneymaker. So that was something that played to his advantage. And then, you know, it's so easy to look at his box office figure and think, wow, that bombed. But why did they make four? Mm-hmm. And all the public sources, they talk about box office, but really the box office was marketing for what home entertainment became mm-hmm. and what foreign video sales became. And I don't know what the exact figures are, but I think that his, um, the kind of money that those series generated were 10 to 15 times whatever the box office number mm-hmm. was. So, um, and it's funny, you guys talked about, oh, he probably got pressured by the studio executives and all that stuff. No, these were some of the choices he made and, uh, it's easy to look back and second guess those choices. But in the moment, people love those choices. And in fact, in Fandango voted that movie one of the top 15 inspirational sports movies. So, um, I, I, I don't, it's just difficult to go back and look at it through a different lens, but I do know that he's, people are still interested in the title and he's, he's, uh, in the process of, of reactivating some of the, uh, elements of the franchise. So uh, let me just go back and say this. I don't ever want to say your intent was bad. You guys are champions, but that's, that's one of the reasons why I was so shocked. And I do write it off as a lapse in the moment. And, you know, and he, he doesn't hold a grudge. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, Dave, but, you know, thinking about this conversation we were having earlier about our, our youths and, and coming up with our fathers and, and trying to like find our Asianness, like maybe there was a distinct element of, going into this super excited about best of the best. You and I were both so high on this because we, we remembered it so fondly from our childhoods and then seeing it and seeing maybe how some anachronisms and, and seeing how it was like a little bit dated. I don't know. Maybe we just got a little embarrassed of our Asianness well, again. I don't think a little bit. I think 100% I was embarrassed by it. Yeah. Right. And everything Teddy said about his father, it's, it's like, you know, this Freud shit is just almost never wrong. <laughs> And, 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 and it's just, it's the truth. Like I joke with Chris all the time. Like, I mean, the 15 plus years I see my psychiatrist, it's only the past couple where I'm like, fuck. <laughs> all, all of this, all this work could have been summed up with one sentence. Like it all, was your dad. All the parents stuff uh, really does explain so much of everything. And, and that's the funniest thing about myself, and I can't speak for anyone else, is, is that embarrassment is what propels me to do things, but also leaves me vulnerable to make poor decisions at, 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 at times when I need to make the best decisions. And I can laugh it off, and I can never think about it again because there probably won't be any consequences. So again, that's why I say thank you for holding me accountable on this. But the reality is, when I watched it again, in t- like... With the with the with the intent of like not being a fan of it, not remembering all the moments that I cherish as a kid, rewinding it on the VHS over and over and over again. 
you know, like, I don't think you can watch a movie that way and, and, and watch it in a vacuum and to be able to express and articulate with, and I know Mina's going to feel the same way about everything we're talking about. Cause I can't talk about a more empathetic, amazing, intelligent, super successful person. Right. Like I think I got caught up with trying to measure where you're supposed to be in 2020 with how it was made back then. And you can't reconcile that. That's, that's very hard to do. That's almost impossible. And if you do do that, of course, it's going to look terrible. And, it, and, and I think trying to find a way to articulate it, that kind of embarrassment is exactly the kind of embarrassment I had about my father. Yeah. You know? And I don't know how to express it. So I laugh. I play it off. And it's not a surprise that you have three Asian Americans sort of doing the same thing about that because maybe we don't know how to respond to yeah. that in a world where we're trying to still fit in. I think that's a great point. That, that, that was what I was thinking too is I think it was a very conscious decision for us to ask Mina, another Asian American, to do this with us, right? Like I don't, I don't know that we would feel so cavalier about you know, trashing an, an Asian American's movie if we had like a white person. I want, I want Amina because she's such an advocate, passionate advocate for all things Korea. Yeah. And to me, this movie wasn't just about being Asian American. This was for me growing up. It was like, this is Bruce Lee was Chinese, Hong Kong, Cantonese. This is Korean. This mm-hmm. is all about Korea for the most part. And that's why I was like, my intent was to connect with that nostalgia. Of growing yeah, up. Yeah, we that's what your intro teased. Yes. And um along the way, I think we're closing the loop now here and acknowledging that what Philip did for the time was something that made a lasting impression on you, uh and, as was very uh formative for you. And his whole intent was not to make an exploitation movie, not about fighting, but it was about diversity and bringing people together. And that was the spirit of the email he sent to you and Chris and Mina, which was like only love for you guys. So if there's any takeaway from this, it's like, don't beat yourself up. Um, thank you for uh, being mindful of it. Um, please accept the mantle and the privilege that you've uh, been, been that you've earned. And um, I got to tell you, I, I look at you, Dave. I you're on a great trajectory. I've been through a lot of therapy. I've been through a lot of the stuff you've gone through, and I'm telling you, I've never been more fulfilled in my life than now because I've went through all those hardships because I've learned to make peace and because I turned the attention away from me and turned it on to lifting others up, which is what you're doing. You know, I will say on something that's hard for me to, to watch as somebody very close to Dave, you know, Teddy, you, you brought this to us, you emailed us and like the, the, the tone of this conversation is one that I wish we could have more often with people when, Somebody who is as out there, as much of a leader as Dave is, somebody who's given opportunities to other people, like you said, like myself included, you know, like Dave has provided me with a lot of opportunities and and he's lifted me up. 
the fact that he couldn't can still have these lapses and, and be embarrassed of best of the best and maybe talk about it with right without the right tone, you know, and then we can have this respectful conversation. I will say the thing that's hard for me is I don't think that the rest of the world is always so forgiving. <laughs> you know, I think that the pressure that Dave is talking about, I see it all the time. And, you know, I taste a little bit. I taste a a minuscule fraction of what he gets from people when we say something that's misinterpreted or, or you know, we've done something before we had the, the benefit of education, enlightenment. And, man, it is brutal. It is brutal to watch. And I can understand when, when Dave is like, man, I, I just... I will lead. I will try to lead, but this is okay. fucking hard. So, so you're you're talking an outside in approach, and I'm talking an inside out approach. The inside is: let me start with me first. Let me reveal that I'm human. Let me reveal the pain I've gone through, the challenges, the anger that brews inside of me. I fight it every day. That's something. You're not pretending to be somebody you're not. So if you can be authentic, there's a better chance of forgiveness. So when I was the perfect guy leading the perfect marriage and the perfect father and the great business guy, I was the imposter police. I thought they were going to come every single day. It's only after I hit rock bottom. And Dave, when, when we have some time, I'll share with you whatever you've gone through. I throw in 20 years on top of it with <laughs> while being in Hollywood. Okay. Um, you know, once you admit that you're far from perfect, magic happens. People cut you some slack. And I always have struggles. So, you know, I met this uh, man, TD Jakes. He's one of the biggest pastors in the world. The Time magazine said he was going to take over from Billy Graham. He, I attended his birthday party, his 60th birthday party. And he was talking about, you know, everybody considers him a great man. And I remember him saying, you know what? I'm not a great man. I struggle with the devil every single day. I fight that beast inside of me and those urges. So I have to do this in order to tame that beast. And I felt like he was looking right at me and seeing my inside at the same time. So I just think it is that, that admission that you're so fragile like everybody else that it, it, it's, it's upside down. That's what makes you so great. And that will give you freedom and peace at the same time. So you may not be there now. You are on that trajectory. Trust me. And, and I'll also say this about Philip and best of the best. And I think that what happened is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think this actually is a good thing for him because you did shine a light on him and his film. Mm -hmm. You have a big audience. And now you chose to revisit that and acknowledge what happened. And it's a win for everybody. Yeah, can I just say, the only one thing I will say in defense of, our, of that podcast is that I did get at least a half a dozen text messages from friends that were like, hey, I'm renting Best of the Best tonight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And by the way, let them laugh, but let them also acknowledge. No, and every one of them was like, oh my God, I had forgotten how much I love this movie. So... 
you know, that's that's my only light defense of, of that podcast. But I, I completely understand where where you're coming from, Teddy. And um, you know, while while we had you here, I did want to go back to like your your story just for a second and, sure. and take this opportunity because you sort of just glossed over. And I think it's pertinent to this conversation. You said, you know, you graduated from Harvard Business and then you came out to Hollywood and you got the dream job. Like, I guess my question is, how the hell did you do that? <laughs> That's like the exact opposite of the Hollywood story. That's like you showed up on the bus with your suitcases and they well, gave you the office. Like, how the hell? <laughs> and then how do you get how do you get Chow Yun Fat? Like, I, I just have to hear some of this from from the horse's mouth. You know. I was very naive and I still have that gift of being, believing that anything is possible. And why do I have that dream that anything is possible that I, to dream big? Well, my father who had a second grade education, who taught himself how to speak English, got himself to America. My mother had bound feet, couldn't speak English. They put four kids through college. That is living proof that anything is possible. If he had not done that, I would be some in a rice paddy in, in China someplace, you know? So I, the, I, I told you I hated my dad. I made peace and, and, and believe he accomplished so much. So he, he did imprint in me that anything is possible. So um, I worked at Grossinger's Hotel. He worked at Grossinger's Hotel. He got me the job there. The union there gave a scholarship every year. One year, it was to the Culinary Institute of America. And the next year, it was to Cornell's Labor Relations School. The year I applied, I won a full scholarship to Cornell because of my father. Hmm. Okay. So my first job was actually in personnel and human resources at NBC in New York City. They transferred me out to Burbank and I met Jeffrey Sagansky, who was the head of the network. And I was a TV junkie. I literally had the TV on round the clock. I could tell you every show on every network at every hour. And I said, and, but I looked at television as a consumer, not as, wow, there's actually gremlins upstairs making this stuff. I, I had no clue that, you know, it was like in being in a restaurant, not knowing there's a chef in the kitchen. <laughs> and I said, you get to do this? You get to pick the taste of a nation. One third of all shows you get to pick. I want that job. How did you get it? And he told me his story. And part of the story that I latched onto was that he went to Harvard Business School. So I applied to Harvard Business School. I got there amongst all these people who are going to investment banking and consulting. I was the fish out of water. And I came back to L.A. and I knocked on his door and I said, I'm here. He said, who are you again? I said, you told me to go to Harvard. He said, I told you I went to Harvard. But it was great branding. Instead of being the Asian dude, I was the Harvard MBA. So I got to rebrand myself into something beyond what was vis visible. And somebody took pity on me. And I, and I, and then people ask me what I do for a living and, and it's being a storyteller. So I was able to tell my story in a way that made sense, even though I had zero experience. So luck, naivete, 
the ability to dream big, that those are some of the things that I, I think I have. That's amazing. That's so funny. I, I used to watch TV the exact same way. And I, I used to watch like, uh, I'd watch a medical drama and I'd be like, I want to be a doctor. And then I'd watch like a courtroom drama and be like, I want to be a lawyer. And then at a certain point after doing that eight or nine times, I was like, I think I just want to make TV shows. <laughs> like, I don't think I want to be any of those things. So I, I, that's amazing. Teddy, what is the advice you have for people that are coming up being like, I want to do what Teddy did? And is it something that is even accessible for them? And secondly to that, is the only way we're going to get more representation is to have more executives in the studios that are Asian American? So it's not just about the green? You know, I I just think that's true for everybody. It's just the world is coming to a place where representation matters, where people spend their dollars based upon identity to a certain extent, right? And it's not about in front of the camera. Yeah, that's part of the equation. But to really scale it, it's behind the camera. So when you guys are producing shows after show after show, and then you staff it, and you have a diverse cast of men and women and and people of color, that's you using your power and really serving all communities. You know, the Boys Club of Hollywood was something that was real. And those walls are being knocked down. And I think uh, Black Lives Matter is the perfect example now that you don't have to be Black to understand the power of the message. So at the end of the day, I've always admired you guys because you do lift up the little guy. It's the little shop owner and it's the, it's, you don't have to be the famous person. And, um, it's about giving people opportunities. So, um, you said that you walk into a room wherever you are, people are going to identify you first. That's that Asian guy, no matter how much you think you blend in. I, I wonder, is, is it a point because if you're a person of color, you have to work harder than the status quo to get the recognition. You have to work so much harder that people, sometimes the one time they forget that you're Asian is when they measure you in the terms of success to everyone else. Do you think that is an accurate statement where, you know, at some point, Teddy, like you just said it, I'm not Asian anymore. I'm a Harvard MBA person, right? And and that's the identity that people can still see. Is 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 that a detriment to our ability? You know, because you have to work so much harder to excel that people forget that you are actually not a white person. Dave, you know, I, my philosophy is, and this pandemic is the perfect example. The pandemic opportunity turn lemons into lemonade. I can't change how people see me, but I can change how I present myself. I can take every uh, negative and find a way to turn it into the positive. My life changed dramatically when I stopped denying my Asianness, when I stopped hating my father, when I accepted that, hey, I'm Chinese, right? So many opportunities came when I was free and I didn't fight myself and I accepted it. So for me, the secret to real peace in life is surrender. 
Can you surrender to God, to how he made you, to who you are, that you are not in control of everything, that you have certain gifts, and if you just surrender to those gifts of who you are, they're going to multiply. Look, you, you're Korean-American. Your food has Korean-American flavors. You like to say, I'm not a Korean chef. I don't make Korean food. I make American food. You can say that all you want. <laughs> but people come into your restaurant and it's like, it's Korean. And you're introducing people who never tasted it to a culture that is foreign. And you make it palatable. But it still pisses off Korean people, though. They're like, oh, it's not authentic. It's not this. It's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. So, so this is the way it goes. Koreans are used to Korean food. So if you don't do it the way my mom did it, it's not Korean. And I'm not paying for that amount of money for Bosan when <laughs> I can get it down the street, right? But that's not your market. And the same people who say it's not and I'm not going to pay they're the ones who are saying, oh, Dave Chang, he's Korean. It's like, it's, it's like uh, what's that, Heinz Ward? Heinz Ward is half Korean. When did Korea recognize that he was half Korean? When he won the Super Bowl. Then he was like homecoming. Yes, yes, yes. You've achieved that. Koreans accept you, accept being Korean wholeheartedly. Wave the flag. And, and by the way, I, my friends criticize me because they think I want to be co more Korean than Chinese. <laughs> Ying, you hear that? You hear that, Ying? It's not too late. It's not too late. <laughs> I'm trying to resist the, I'm trying to resist the temptation, resist the force, the Sith Lord over here trying you know, to bring me over there. You know, Teddy, you said something that's funny, right? Like, uh, you're of the Christian faith. I grew up in it, and I am certainly not but I appreciate a lot of the stories and the message. And you, but you said something that's really fascinating. You said surrender. And I've spent a lot of time with addicts. I've been to AA meetings, not because actually I should have probably have gone to AA in the past, but the idea of surrender, it's something you see a lot in Hinduism and Buddhism and all religions. And this idea, you know, you can even see it in you know, Greek philosophy and Western philosophy, the idea of just surrender. Why is it so set up in human nature that you can only surrender when you've fucked it all up? Why can't you learn that earlier on? Because, you know, learning requires failure. Michael Jordan did not win six titles only. He also lost a lot. You know, if you have a batting average of 300, you're going to make the Hall of Fame. Do you focus on all the times you struck out? No. So you're focusing in on uh, your mistakes. That's crazy. And I'm not asking you to be uh, arrogant about it. I'm asking you to be humble, but recognize who you are and what you've accomplished. And And don't put unrealistic uh, expectations upon yourself. So many people have, I got to be this by 40 and this by 50 and this much in the bank. And it's like, man, you're missing. You're missing the journey is what's powerful. What you learn along the way, the people you meet, 
and the experiences of love along the way, that's, that's, that's what you're going to really remember. And, and if you can, if you can uh, embrace some of this without having to experience all the mistakes yourself, you're way ahead of it. Um, can I ask just one more, uh, gratuitous, I have to know myself question. (laughs) Sure. Uh, Yun Fat, is he pretty cool? (laughs) Is he a cool guy in real life? That's my whole childhood. Yun Fat is the coolest guy on earth. Fuck. (laughs) I haven't kept in touch with him of recent, but let me tell you something. When he, uh, I, I reached out to, because I wanted to bring him to the U.S. for personal reasons. For me. So we got a movie made and he, at the start of production, he threw a banquet and invited the entire cast God damn. and went up to each person and said, hi, I am Chayun Fat. I want to thank you for helping me. Please, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. He went everybody. He knew everybody's name every day when he came to set. He said hello to everybody. When we had the premiere in Hong Kong, we flew, uh, my kids and I and my uh, ex-wife flew there. And he wanted me to have free time. So he took my kids and babysat them. (laughs) And when you picked them up, they were both, they were all holding two guns and had like a (laughs) cigarette dangling out of their mouth. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad to hear that because, man, what a hero. So Bruce Lee and Chayun Fat, okay, all right, I got to give it to you. His, his legend is, is gigantic, and, uh, but Chayun Fat, man, he always has a special place in my heart. Yeah, me too. I'm going to watch Replacement Killers tonight. <clears throat> and you could do a bad movie thing, but I want you to always <laughs> look at what happens. After. 100%. Well, Teddy, uh, it means a lot that you came on to this and you acted as therapist for someone that's in a fucking crazy place in his life. So, uh, and it means a lot that you wanted to talk about all this and thank you for being so vulnerable yourself and talking about your past. And I know it's not easy, but I I know that we have an audience that's going to really appreciate who you are and the stories you tell. So thank you. That was our conversation with the magnificent, magnanimous Teddy Z. <laughs> and if you haven't watched a Chow Yun Fat film, you should. And uh, he is, you know, I again, like I, I apologize. I, I know we said Bruce Lee with our podcast with Bao Win was. He's unequivocally the the sexiest Asian man alive, and I will not back down from that statement. I just think Chow Young Fat is like a beautiful, handsome man. I think they're very different things. <laughs> I think they're very different things. If He's you sexy ask in a me, different way. If you ask me who's the most handsome <laughs> actor, I would most likely definitely say Chow Young Fat. Oh, man. I, I, I don't want to say, Teddy, you're going to listen to this. It's not, <laughs> it's not semantics here. I'm just simply saying, you know what? I had time to think about the conversation. 
I disagree with you there. We said sexiest Asian man. And I know I know he's saying sexy. I think that Chow Yun Fat is devilishly handsome. Uh-huh. I feel like we've during this quarantine, we've spawned a few different uh, podcast formats. Um if you guys want to see Dave just talking about the, the intricacies of sexy versus handsome as it pertains to Asian actors, give us five stars on iTunes and just comment um, yes to the uh, the, the well, hot or I'd not like Asian know, edition. If you want to talk, if you want to have a real conversation about this, let's have this discourse. You can write about it on our iTunes page. Give us five stars and talk about the semantics. Is Chow Yun Fat handsome or sexy? And is Bruce Lee? sexy or you know what i mean i don't think bruce lee in my opinion is the technically handsome handsome he's a he's a demigod he's a of his own you know I think part of that is because bruce lee is shirtless and oiled up so often when you see him and why do you and, say it's oiled uh, is it just natural sweat <laughs> it's just natural sheen oh man i wish i sparkled like that yeah chow yun fat's always like cool and calm and collected that's that's the difference but um yeah hell whatever i mean we're gonna be in quarantine for a long ass time if we start just doing like a Asian men. If, hot if or you're not. a real listener to this podcast, you will take this as seriously as a dissertation. Yeah, I want to see some. I want to see some debate break out on the yeah. uh, iTunes page here. So long as we we Chai maintain this handsome or sexy, and it's Bruce Lee only sexy and stylish. <laughs> Let the debates begin. All right. <laughs>